Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, if you'd like to make a suggestion, or if you'd like to leave me a message of any kind, please feel free to do so by writing me at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. If you are an Anchor user, please feel free to leave me a voice message. And now, let's get into Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 2. Late the next morning, the five musketeers, some clad in shorts, some in blue jeans, put the finishing touches on their clubhouse. The boards for the sides might not be nailed on evenly, but all four sides were well covered. The roof was enclosed with tar paper over the boards, and though the rain might drive beneath the overlapping pieces or slide under, it would be fairly dry inside. The clubhouse had no windows, but they could leave the door open for light and air which, they reasoned, they would only need when they were in residence. The narrow door was no masterpiece, being a slab of discarded plywood, but it was hung on hinges and it closed. There was an eyelet catch, contributed by Henny's father, to hold it in place, but no lock. Proud of their completed home, they went inside to have their first formal meeting. For furniture they had five wooden boxes which they referred to and regarded as chairs. They arranged these in a circle and sat on them. They left the door wide open for light, and though it wasn't very light, it would do. George moved his chair slightly to one side so that it faced the others. He said, "'This will be the President's chair, which I'll sit on until we elect one.' The way he pronounced President established that he regarded all offices as starting with a capital letter, and the others seemed to concur in this. And about being President, George continued, because I'm the oldest, now going on thirteen, I think I ought to be President. If anyone came close to questioning this, it might have been Gracie or Paul who were eleven, but no one did, and mostly by default, George was elected President. Henny was chosen vice-president, Gracie secretary, and Paul treasurer. In gratitude for having achieved this office, Paul contributed a pencil to the club for record-keeping so, it, it so that it would not have to buy one. Not to be outdone in club spirit, Gracie said she would bring a notebook that she had. "'How about me?' asked Joey. "'What can I be?' Plaintively, Joey said, "'I want to be something.' George proposed, you can be a stockholder. What do I hold? You don't hold anything, Gracie said. It's just a name, said Paul. I ought to hold something if I'm a stockholder. They paid no more attention to his wants, but to another project. George addressed the secretary. Gracie, you're good at lettering, so you're appointed a committee of one to make a sign for the clubhouse. Can you do it today while you're home for lunch? I don't see why not. They sat on their chairs, and Joey wanted to know, what do we do now? We sit, said George. We ought to do more than that, Joey complained. We'll think of something, said Henny. They thought, but nothing occurred to them. After lunch, for which they went to their homes, Gracie brought the sign she had prepared and her notebook. She had lettered the sign neatly with a black grease pencil on an oblong piece of stiff white cardboard adding a flourish of her own. It read, Clubhouse, the five musketeers, all for one, one for all, keep out. The five stood around and admired it. 
George read off aloud the motto and told Gracie it was a good job. The others said the same. Gracie flushed with pleasure and pride in her work. George brought out one of the chairs from inside the clubhouse, bringing also the old hammer they had for the building and some nails. Standing on the box, he nailed the sign above the doorway. They all agreed it looked fine. They were standing outside and admiring it some more when they had a second visit from Alfred Wesley. He came up on them from behind, just as he had yesterday, and when he shouted at them, some of the musketeers jumped. They all whirled to face him. The old man stood there in a fine state of agitation. In his baggy old clothes he jiggled up and down, making his glasses move along his nose. When he raised his hands and held one out in front of, in front of him, in an accusing gesture they were seen to be dirty, as though sifted with a fine soot. He was nearly incoherent when he cried, "'Now I've had enough of this. Don't want anybody here at all, banging or not.' you got to get out. you got to tear this thing down and get out. The children stood like statues for a moment regarding him, getting adjusted to his unannounced attack. Joey's mouth hung open, his blue eyes shocked. George frowned. Gracie bit her pretty little lips. Henny just stared. Paul had the least expression on his good-looking face. It was Paul who spoke first, and he tried to continue the reasonable attitude toward Mr. Wesley. "'We haven't done you any harm,' he pointed out. "'We're living up to our word not to go near your house.' "'Or near you,' Gracie put in. "'I don't want you around here,' the old man shouted. He moved his still-pointing finger in the direction of the clubhouse. "'You got to tear that thing down!' George shook his head. He spoke as if, being the president, it was his responsibility and role to be spokesman and stand up for their organization. "'No, sir,' he said stubbornly. "'We won't tear it down.' The others now adopted the attitude of their leader, their resentment mounting. "'We aren't bothering you, Mr. Wesley,' Henny told him. "'Not bothering you at all,' Gracie declared. "'So why don't you leave us alone?' demanded Paul. "'Why won't you?' shrilled Joey. Alfred Wesley stared at them, his own anger mounted. "'I tell you, you got to tear that thing down and get out of here.' He jumped. His movement was grotesque, like a large scarecrow doll dancing. "'I won't have it, and I won't have you here. Too near. You come to my house sometime, and you just tear it down,' he screamed. "'Tear it down!' His rage held the children for an instant. Then George routinely took a step forward. He still held the hammer in his hand, and he stood as tall as he could to make himself as imposing as possible. He said, "'Well, we won't.' "'If you don't do it,' the old man cried, "'then I will.' Before George knew it, before George knew what Alfred Wesley was doing, he lunged forward and grabbed the hammer out of George's hand. With it, he raced as fast as his stiff old limbs would carry him the few yards to the clubhouse. There he began hammering at it loudly but futilely, his blows causing no damage but threatening to do so if he kept on. George and Henny ran to him. They grabbed him, George by the arm, wielding the hammer which fell to the ground. Instead of giving up, he fought them, and George and Henny alone could not control him, so Paul and Gracie and Joey joined the fray, while he kicked, flailed, and even spat at them. Gracie spat back. 
and suddenly Henny slapped the old man hard on the side of the face, nearly making his glasses fall off. At that he stopped fighting, and the children desisted also. The scarecrow stood there, shaking now, vibrating with agitation and exertion. With a trembling hand he adjusted his glasses. The contact of the fight seemed to have rubbed off the sooty dirt on his hands. His stubbly face had gone pale, and his right hand grabbed his chest as though at a stabbing pain there. He was still able to glare at them and gasp, "'You!' He turned, then, and staggered back to his house. The children watched while he climbed the steps. One foot went through a hole, and they thought he would fall, but he recovered and got to the door. He pushed it open, slowly went inside, and closed the door. End of segment two.